Hello, Cullen. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us. It's a very interesting organisation, Kilter Rural, and I suppose I wonder if we could start by giving us just a sort of potted history of what Kilter Rural is and what, what its ambition is. Uh, sure, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having us on. Greatly appreciated. Uh, Kilter was formed in 2004, really, in response uh, to a request from an institutional investor. And that institutional investor was seeking uh, to invest into rural and regional Australia to transform the way food was produced, so produce more food and fibre using less land and water resources, to repair ecosystems that had been damaged and degraded, uh, so within that also protecting biodiversity, and to deliver a solution, I guess, is the best way to put it, or one part of the solution to climate change. So they were the sort of riding instructions. I, I mean, those uh, that institutional investor obviously recognised these assets are uh, almost totally uncorrelated uh, with, with um, other traditional investment classes. So, you know, that was another plus. But that was in 2004. Uh, we, we established a, a regenerative agricultural model that serviced those, um, those four requirements, you know, producing more food using less land and resources, redressing biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation, and making agriculture a key part of the solution to climate change. So, you know, we've been working pretty hard at that for 16 years now, uh, and we've, we've had a, a, a good track record of delivering returns above target returns. So, you know, that farmland investment's done over nine, nine and a half percent. Uh, we've got other investments that have delivered around, uh, well, water investments delivered over 13% um, and we're just into our next phase of our uh, farmland regenerative investment program through the Kilter Australian Farmland Fund. So we have 500 million in assets under management at the moment. Uh, we'd like to get that up to, you know, over a billion by 2023, 24. Uh, and really, you know, profitably improve as much of the Australian landscape as we can. That's our goal. It strikes me, and maybe this was not the case when, when you started, but in this day and age with the awareness we have of climate change and the, the land degradation, particularly in parts of Australia, why wouldn't most agricultural investors be set up this way? Because it, it, it sounds like, A, you're regenerating the land, but B, you're getting very solid, more sustainable returns. Uh, why wouldn't they? That's a good question. I, I think increasingly they are. You know, it's probably in some respects, you know, we, we were obviously very, very um, early adopters of this approach. And that was driven as much as anything by our history before starting Kilter Rural. So you know, I, I've got 30 years now working in, you know, rural and regional landscapes. Um, and across land care groups and catchment management authorities and trying to, I guess, balance production with environmental protection. I mean, that's all, you know, the founders of Kilter ever did before Kilter was established. So in that sense, we come from a different background, I think. You know, many of our uh, competitors, historic and recent, have come from a financial, you know, management background. We came from an asset management background and, you know, a sustainability asset management background. So the, the organisation's always been driven by that outcome. 
I think increasingly, Andrew, in the last 18 months to two years, almost every one of our competitors is sort of pitching themselves at least partly in this space, which is a great evolution from, you know, I guess, recent history. But it's probably the nature of things, really, isn't it? You know, uh, people will respond when investors start asking, and that's the other key thing that's happened, I reckon, in the last two years, is investors. Capital allocators are really asking much harder questions about where their money's going and, you know, the sustainability and community impacts of that. Potentially, there's there's two reasons why that might be the case. I mean, one is they're seeing better long-term sustainable returns, but equally there is there is pressure, you know, from lots of, whether it's activist groups or just the community in general, to do the right thing by the land. So is it the case that you are compromising returns, but you're doing it for sort of the greater good, or do you get both? Nothing's easy in agriculture. I'd make that point. Whichever way you do it, nothing's easy. You know, there's always challenges. But I just can't see how you can sensibly suggest at all that uh, any degradation of the environment that underpins your productive footprint is going to be good for the long-term value of your asset. I, I just can't see how that makes sense. I mean, the, the two things are just so inextricably linked that uh, if you're not working to improve the environmental or natural capital condition, um, you're basically degrading your long-term, you know, agricultural output. And I, and I think, you know, any agricultural enterprise of, of any worth that's been operating for a long time recognises that. And you talk about nothing in agriculture being easy, and, and clearly we see that just not through agricultural cycles alone, but what's happening with climate. So how do you balance those those difficulties in terms of, you know, are there principles that you apply to, to how you, um, you manage the land and how you perhaps forego a return in the short term for a longer term return? Uh, look, I, I do think the, the operating sort of outlook has changed. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and some of them you can control and some of them you can't. Uh, obviously, the key amongst them, you know, in a risk sense, really is climate change. You know, if you look at the areas that we work in, you know, in, in the southern Murray-Darling Basin, there's been a 26% drop in winter rainfall. Now, that's significant because, you know, we rely on irrigation water. So a drop in winter rainfall means a drop in, you know, stream flow and a drop in storage and, you know, with that long-term decline has also come these just massive events. You know, we've just seen some extraordinary rainfall events. So, you know, from day dot, you know, from 2004, we have taken the most cautious approach to laying out our landscapes that we could with the impacts of climate change in mind. So planning properties to flood, planning to deal with big rain events so we can move rainwater off really high value crops and into environmental areas, uh, planning for extreme drought scenarios, you know, we, we've been in a series of events where, you know, you've had uh, heat waves of 46 degrees, I don't know, six, seven days in a row, um, and planning water systems to cope with that sort of stress. So, you know, I guess it's like everything. I don't think agriculture is any more difficult or easy than anything else, you know, and I think if you think hard enough about where you invest your money, you'll see risks um, and different risks now than there were two years ago. So in that sense, it's really about being prepared and considering the landscape, you know, as an envelope that delivers a whole range of outcomes, not just agricultural 
you know, output. And you're not, um, oh, I'm assuming with this philosophy, you're not specialist producers. You're not wedded to a particular commodity or, um, uh, you know, whether it's meat or wool or something else. You, you need to look at a whole balance of um, production coming off your land. Yeah, we do tend to like a diversity of things. I, I guess to this point, our major focus, um, based around the areas in which we operate, and we operate in the southern Murray-Darling Basin, as I said, and you consider that area, it's about the size of Germany. So you get, you know, terrific geographic um, and climatic uh, variation across that area. Uh, so in that sense, it's good. And the soils and, and climate lend themselves to a range of potential sort of outcomes in an agricultural sense. We have, to this point, though, really looked at annual crops and high-value annual crops. Uh, in our irrigation systems for the sole purpose that we expect climate change driven water availability and scarcity to be an issue. So when we've got annual crops, it gives us options. We can decide whether we want to plant a crop and use the water to grow that crop or whether it's better in a risk mitigation sense and a return sense to actually trade that water on in a given year. So, you know, that, that's the first part of my response to what sort of uh, um, activity we're doing in our landscapes. The second thing I'd say is where we do have crops, we try to decommodify them. So we try and have, in almost every instance, long-term offtake agreement. And they're best endeavours contracts, so they recognise that, you know, uh, climate variability and water availability means some years you may not be able to do everything you, you plan to. Uh, but we don't put a thing in the ground, unless uh, a crop in the ground, unless we know we've got somebody on the other side uh, to buy it and we know the price we're going to get and that price stacks up in our model of uh, water use and water optionality. And one element of, of your mission is obviously to revitalise uh, degraded land. How do you choose that? Presumably there's some land that's just too degraded and, and some that you wouldn't get enough return from improving. How, how do you make that choice over the land you're going to use? I'd like to stress we don't target degraded land. I think uh, undercapitalised and underutilised is probably a, a better way to present it. Um, I mean, in some instances, some of it is degraded. You know, there's no doubt about that. Irrigation zones have, you know, been highly and intensively irrigated for a long time now. And in some areas, that's had pretty deleterious impacts on the environment, whether that's the soils or water quality and or both. Um, so, you know, we don't, we don't seek out degraded land, but what we do seek, uh, those sorts of landscapes that have been highly modified uh, that allow themselves to a regenerative transformation and value uplift. Um, so from a, a country that might have great soils, actually, but um, has just been underutilised, is undercapitalised, you know, maybe an industry that's in transition for whatever reason, you know, economics, demographics, uh, whatever it might be, uh, and an area where we know when we bring capital we can transform, you know, the underlying value of that asset in a capital growth sense, but also in a yield sense. So we can transform what happens and how we efficiently deliver to get increased yield, 
and uh, long-term sustainability out of, out of a landscape. And you've talked about the, the broadening investor base coming into not just your own project, but, but similar projects. Now, ultimately, that investment dollar is looking for a return and perhaps there's you know some ESG components or something. But what is it in particular that these emerging investors like to see and like to be, you know, to see measured perhaps? Uh, look, increasingly... You know, we, we've found ourselves being asked, um, uh, I guess, how we report on the natural capital or the environmental condition of our assets. Uh, and it's not so much necessarily uh, even about the immediate impact, but it's, it's more reporting on the long-term trending condition over time. So, you know, when we walk into a landscape, we might say, all right, there are some degradation issues, uh, but... You know, dear investor, over time we'll transform that landscape, we'll improve those degradation issues. And what they ask us is, all right, well, how are you measuring that? How are you going to report that to us? Yep, we'll take the returns, you know, financial returns as a given. Um, you know, whatever your targets are, we like what you put there and we like the experience you've got in delivering that against that sort of target. But how are you actually going to measure the change in the underlying condition and trend of the asset that underpins everything you're doing and the value of your investment. Uh, and so we, we've really applied our mind to that for a long time. I, I had a history before Kilter reporting on the condition of natural assets uh, in Victoria particularly. Uh, and, you know, we've come on to now uh, an accounting for nature framework, really, uh, which, which looks at measuring, physically measuring, your key asset bases, so soils, water, vegetation, uh, flora and fauna, and measuring that over time against, you know, a baseline condition and benchmarks um, for, you know, targeted improvement. So it's a pretty robust framework we use. It's called the Accounting for Nature Framework, uh, and we've been employing that now for probably close to four years. Uh, and it is, it is the key thing. Always, investors ask us ask us about you know how are you measuring, monitoring, and reporting what you do. So you know that that's been really important for us. And one of the key elements I like about the accounting for nature framework and our you know prospective and current investors seem to like is that it is independently audited, you know, and independently certified. And any method you employ to measure. Uh, the condition of assets is independently scientifically approved before you go out and do it. It's not just like making up your own framework. You know, it, it's a really pretty scientifically robust system. So that we found that has appealed to lots of investors. Is that an international framework, the Accounting for Nature framework? Uh, it's, it's an Australian-based framework, but certainly applicable internationally. We're using it locally uh, and... We, uh, the, I know the Accounting for Nature framework is speaking, you know, at a national level. It's used in Queensland, it's used across uh, areas of New South Wales, and there are other, you know, corporates like us in our space that are using it too. It certainly fits within an international framework in that it fits into the UN system of environmental accounts. It can feed up into a system like that. So it's certainly got lots of applications at, all, at a range of scales. And when we look at, um, at, again, at the investor side, uh, for example, even with ANZ, there is a, a now sizable and growing investor base that is looking at ESG elements, environmental, social and governance elements in, in, as a proxy for the sort of sustainability of earnings. So those, 
that sort of ESG sensitivity, presumably that's applicable to Kilter as well. Are they the kinds of investors that are coming in? Yeah, increasingly they are, Andrew. That's right. So we're getting lots of interest from ANZ Private Wealth and you know their, their sort of uh, list of investors and high net worth investors. And you know, it, it, as I said earlier, it's the capital allocators that are going to decide how far you know this sort of uh, trend goes. And I can't see it waning any time. I can only see it getting stronger. And you know, they're the ones driving the questions, along with you know groups playing a leadership role like ANZ, you know, who have made some pretty fundamental statements about you know what you want to support and where you want to be in a sustainability sense. So you know, while we've been leading for you know 16 years, we are seeing it's reflected in a lot of investor interest. And we've clearly just come through a year of um, extraordinary challenge and difficulty, and you know, COVID-19 is ongoing and there has been implications there for the sustainability of, of food supplies globally. How big an impact on that on that global situation can impact investing like this have? Is it always going to be a good but marginal good or is it potentially a, a much bigger player in the global supply chain? I think increasingly it will be a much bigger player. You know, touching back on what I said earlier about you know, the environment and agricultural produce, you know, and uh, being inextricably linked. And I do believe that as a factual sort of proven fact that we've been delivering for, you know, over 16 years. Um, I, I really think if you look around right now at what's happening in policy settings, so, you know, in Europe and the UK and the US and Canada and significant parts of Asia, there are very serious discussions about things like, you know, climate and climate-related risk, uh, the risk of nature and biodiversity loss, and how investors manage that through their investments. And, you know, we've just noticed of recent times the just escalation around the task force for climate-related disclosures. So we employ those sorts of frameworks in our investments. Um, because, you know, investors expect it. But, you know, we've been doing it sort of in a funny way for five, ten years anyway. You know, we get the CSIRO in and they tell us, you know, what their climate modelling is telling them. Uh, they tell us how far in front reality is from the modelling, and that's been the case every time, I'd like to stress. You know, it's, it's pretty scary stuff. So I do believe that that impetus won't go away. The policy settings are changing fundamentally. Um, you know, there's a whole new lexicon being developed in, in the EU for investing and, you know, you know what that means for nature. I mean, it's pretty, it's fundamental change. And if you look at farmland and what it can do, yep, we can produce food and fibre and yep, we know we can do it sustainably. But in the context of climate change, there's not that many things, Andrew, that you can instantly right now do that physically draws CO2 out of the air. Uh, or out of the atmosphere. And, you know, one of those is land-based sequestration. You know, we know when we plant trees and woody vegetation that it sequesters carbon. So in that sense, it's one of the immediate levers policy developers and regulators can pull to start addressing climate change. Obviously, that doesn't get around the fact that you have to reduce emissions. That's, that's first principle. But, you know, land-based sequestration is one positive option we know we can do now. We know it works. Um, and, you know, we know it's a lot cheaper than the other 
comparable methods at the moment, like carbon capture and storage. So in that sense, I think the outlook for farming and farm-based emissions control, you know, is really very positive. As you say, the um, the expectations that the CSIRO and others are putting forward are continually being, you know, surpassed on on the downside. So uh, hopefully, you can continue to see investor interest in this and continue to make an impact. But thanks very much for taking the time for speaking with us, Cullen. No problems at all, Andrew. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Blue Notes. This podcast was produced by the Blue Notes editorial team with music by Kevin McLeod. Blue Notes is a publication of ANZ Banking Group.